Welcome, everyone, to episode 55 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Rob Sarah. And Rob is a retired FDNY firefighter. Uh, he was in the academy uh, on September 10th. And on September 11th, 2001, he just happens to be doing uh, going to a tryout for the FDNY hockey team. And he sees the towers are on fire. And he ends up responding. So his very first call was to the World Trade Center on 9-11-2001. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the, the immediate health effects that he could tell, you know, that something was wrong, that there was so much dust and and uh, all sorts of chemicals. I mean, they, they he said they created chemicals that day. Um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, retiring from the job. We're going to talk about uh, fighting Congress, uh, trying to get the Victims Compensation Fund uh, passed and renewed and just taking care of not just the firefighters, not just the police, but everybody that was down there, you know, those those beginning days that dealt with the dust and were told that the atmosphere is safe when clearly, clearly it wasn't. So we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about Ray Pfeiffer. He was a big part of that fight as well with Congress, and Rob is now part of Ray Pfeiffer's foundation. So we're going to discuss Ray and also his foundation as well. So without further ado, let's give it up to Rob. All right, welcome everyone to the 25 Live. With me today is my special guest, Rob Sarah. How are you doing this evening, Rob? Very good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, I appreciate you making time for uh, the listeners here. So let's just jump right into it. Let's start with September 10th, 2001. <clears throat> Where were you at? What were you doing then? Um, I was still in the academy, technically, so I think we had some sort of classes that day. I want to say, like, uh, CFR training or something like that. Um, we were scheduled to go into the field on the 13th for, at the time, the FDNY was doing this weird program with in the middle of the academy. You do eight weeks in the academy, then 14 weeks in the field, just working in a firehouse and then go back to the academy for three weeks. So I was about to start that rotation. Um, so 9-10 we had CFR I believe and then on 9-12 we were supposed to oddly enough go to the trade center to play victims for an FBI terrorism drill um, which obviously never happened. Uh, so yeah so I was off on uh, 9-11 was a day off for me. <clears throat> I was uh, driving to Long Island uh, to try out for the FDNY hockey team. Um, and I got to the Verrazano Bridge uh, and I could see one of the towers on fire. So I immediately switched onto the regular radio and uh, see what was going on. Right away, I uh, called my brother who was on the job um, at the time and just asked him what to do because I had no idea if I should go there, um, go to his firehouse, which was on the way. Uh, he told me to go home uh, and get my gear, which was uh, some sound advice. Uh, so I turned around, went back home, got my gear, and I reported to the nearest firehouse. Um, two firehouses later, um, ended up on a bus heading to the ferry terminal, which is where they were staging and taking people over. Um, the bus ride um, 
was was interesting. Um, I remember uh, I was getting my chops broken pretty good. You know, I had a shaved head. I was 21. I, I must have looked like I was 15 to those guys. Uh, and I was actually pulling the tags off my gear because I hadn't used my new gear yet because I was still using the the old stuff they give you in the academy. And uh, you know, they, so they started breaking my chops. You know, what do you what do you just do your father's gear? You know. Uh, and then uh, a priest got on um, and he kind of briefed us on what we were heading into. And then he read us all last rites uh, and then everyone just got quiet from what I remember. And um, eventually we made it to the ferry from there. Uh, I don't remember if it was a chief or somebody came out and asked if anybody was O negative uh, blood type. So it was just me and a lieutenant next to me, the only ones who raised our hands. So they took us right away. Uh, we went to the nearest hospital and donated a pint of blood. Um, and then I eventually made it to another firehouse uh, and waited for a bus to pick us up and take us to ground zero. Um, so I eventually got there late afternoon, early evening ish. How, how soon? when you were down there were you starting to kind of feel the physical effects of all the different dust and smoke uh, and everything in that atmosphere which which you were told was safe yeah well days later yeah but at, at the time um like you said it, it was the dust was or the air itself was was quite tangible you know you could just reach out and grab a handful of it right in front of your face, you know, it was, it was very difficult to see. Um, I would say I, I probably operated for, you know, maybe an hour or so. Um, and then, excuse me, my nose started bleeding. So I, I, I noticed pretty much right away, my nose started bleeding and it bled, I want to say for three or four hours. You know, I had a paper mask on but at that point I couldn't wear it anymore. It was filling with blood, um, but you couldn't breathe through it anyway. You know, it, it, the masks were just caked and it was like, you know, cake batter, you know, so you, you couldn't really get any air through it. Um, so my nose bled for hours. Um, I made my way to a makeshift medical area that they had set up. Um, and I remember quite distinctly, uh, I think it was a PA, she asked me, she said, what happened? Did something hit you in the face? And I was just like, no, I've been breathing this in for an hour or two, you know, like this is, this is enough. And, uh, you know, they, they gave me some water and I, I went and laid down on the wheel of a bulldozer and I must've passed out. Um, I don't know how long I was out for, um, you know, like I said, I gave a pint of blood before I got there and my nose was bleeding for a couple hours. So, um, I just remember waking up to a lot of screaming and somebody was yelling my friend's name, who was actually one of the guys that I went down there with. Um, you know, his father was a captain and he, he must have sent somebody looking for him because, you know, in those days, anybody who, who happened to have a cell phone uh, didn't have service, you know, you know, those was in those times, you know, not everybody had one. Um, so, you know, everyone was, trying to find a way to get in touch with whoever they knew was there you know I was fortunate I got in touch with my brother 
twice before I got there. Uh, once when I was in the car, and then uh, when I was at, at the ferry, uh, I got him on the phone, and he was actually there already. Um, so I knew that he was there post collapse. So for me, I was a little less concerned about him. Um, but yeah, so I woke up to that, and uh, yeah, then, and then I went back to work. I found the chief. Uh, like I said, I, I hadn't actually made it to a firehouse yet, so I really had no idea what to do. So you didn't know anybody or, I mean, yeah. You know, I, 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 I knew my friends from the academy and whoever I happened to know from growing up, but, you know, I never found my brother that day. You know, I didn't know, I don't know what part of the pile he was on. Um, oddly enough, I bumped into, uh, the guys from the firehouse I was supposed to go train with, uh, and I, I introduced myself, but the, you know, at that point, the, the last thing you want to do is, you know, meet at some probie, uh, you know, so that, you know, I didn't really, um, stay with them. I just, I, I found a chief. He gave me a few assignments to do. And, uh, I basically just did that. You know, I jumped on the end of the bucket brigade at one point, <clears throat> For a while, I remember before my nose started bleeding, um, a different chief had me just walking around with parking cones, marking off body parts, um, anything really that people were, you know, people were screaming all over the place. So, you know, we need help flaking out a hose line or whatever. So it was really, uh, for me, it was, it was extra chaotic because I didn't exactly know what to do in the first place. Not that anybody really knew what to do anyway, um, but, you know, you would think that, uh, you know, looking back on it now, that the way so many people just jumped right in and started doing things that they had done it before, you know, um, you know, that was, that was pretty amazing. But, you know, for me, it was, you know, the, the shock of it all <clears throat> um, was overwhelming enough on top of trying to do a job that I've never, <laughs> never did before. Um, so how many days did you end up down there on the pile? Um, not many. Um, at that point I, after that day, I went home sometime the next morning and got in my car and drove straight to Queens. Uh, it was a letter 136 was the company I was supposed to train with. Um, they sent me home, told me to come back the next day, and we started an AB chart, um, which, you know, as you probably know, uh, half the company comes in on one day and half comes in the next day. So they would just take six guys, put them on the rig, and everybody else would go down to the Trade Center. Um, being that, technically, I was still in the academy, um, and I had a very good captain there, Captain McNally, uh, who, you know, who actually, you know, took the time in that chaos to remember that, you know, I was still, I still needed to be trained. So he, he, he kept me in the firehouse as often as he could um, to ride on the rig and, you know, learn how to be a fireman. But so I, I think I went down once or twice with the company. Um, I did, uh, I did a day out at the Staten Island landfill, um, sorting through the, the uh, debris out there with the conveyor belts. Um, so yeah. I was fortunate uh, in that respect that I didn't 
you know, I didn't spend weeks down there or months like, like some other people. When did you start noticing any health effects from that scene? Uh, well, the nosebleeds continued. I got a nosebleed every day, probably for two years after that. Did you ever have a nosebleed before then? Um, no, I mean, I've had nosebleeds, but not, not chronic. That's like just that. when, when your brother punches you or something. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my brother or somebody else, but, uh, no. And then, uh, they, the, the job sent us for medicals in October of that year. And, um, I had a few things pop up, you know, I, I had a, uh, a regular heartbeat pop up a little murmur, um, which I've never had before. And I had just had an EKG before they hired me. So it wasn't that long. Um, and my lung capacity had dropped, uh, in April when I took my pre hiring physical, it was at, I think it was 93 and 94%. And then in October it was at 79%. So that's a big pre-drastic drop. Um, you know, like I said, I was 21. I didn't smoke, you know, so couldn't have been from anything else. Um, you know, I hadn't gone to many fires at that point, you know, maybe two or three fires, but, um, so yeah, I mean, I noticed it right away. You know, a lot of people did. I mean, I remember the FDMY issued everybody, uh, an inhaler, um, you know, so clearly there was a lot going on at the time, you know. How long were you able to continue to work before you were like, Hey, this, this kind of my breathing, my nose bleeds, you know, this isn't right at all. I'm having difficulty. There's, you know, I'm in my late twenties, whatever it may be. And something's really wrong here. Um, I had surgery in, I think it was 2005 and that corrected the nosebleeds and uh, you know, that, that helped a lot. Uh, so then I, you know, I had, I had a few good years in there and then, uh, you know, I started noticing it was getting harder to breathe and, you know, but I didn't really think anything. I mean, like you said, at that point I was probably like 28, uh, 27, 28 in 2008, we got in an accident uh, at work and I had a pretty, uh, severe concussion and, um, they did a CAT scan and the doctor came in and just, you know, went over the CAT scan and then just flippantly as, as she walked out said, Oh, and you have a few dozen polyps on your sinuses and in your nose that you should probably get checked out and then just left the room. So I'm sitting there like, what does that mean? And then my sister-in-law was in the room with me, happens to be a physician and she ran out to the hallway. Like, what do you, you know, what do you mean? He's, you know, she, spoken a language that I don't understand and, and then came back and was like, yeah, you have polyps, you need to go get them checked out. Um, so at that point, um, it started, that's when it really started getting bad for me. It was, uh, I started getting more polyps. Um, my sinuses were, were blocked. My nose was blocked. So anytime I would work up any sort of sweat, um, you know, like I, I was still playing hockey then, um, I just couldn't breathe through my nose. Uh, everything would just, it was just tough and it would be laboring. Then I would feel it, you know, like your muscles, I feel like I wasn't getting oxygen, you know, to my, uh, to my legs. Um, so I kept working. And then in 2010, 
um, I eventually had surgery to have the polyps removed. Um, and that's when things really changed for me. Uh, I went back to work, but it was tough. Any, any slightest bit of smoke, you know, because at that point, now I just had scar tissue all over my sinuses. So the slightest bit of smoke, I would, I would get a sinus infection, you know, in that last two years, I was on antibiotics like 20 times. Um, I was in the hospital a couple times because I, I would, you know, the, the fevers just wouldn't go down. Um, so on top of <laughs> the slew of other injuries that I got at work, um, it just got more and more difficult for me to, to even just function at that point. Um, and that's when I really started noticing the, the other effects, not just the respiratory, the, the, uh, the neurological effects, you know, I, I, I noticed that. I started getting a lot of pain in my feet, you know, and I always attribute it to you know, just wearing my bunker boots too long or, you know, my hockey skates were tight. So, you know, just figured, you know, it was just normal. You know, I play hockey by the time I got off the ice, I couldn't feel my feet anymore. Um, then I started noticing like, you know, I pass the puck or shoot the puck and I had no idea where it was going. Like I just couldn't, the messages weren't firing the same, you know? Um, so then I realized that something was a little more wrong than, than just, you know, the, the sinus issue. Um, so then in 2012, um, after another severe sinus infection, I went back to my surgeon and he just, he laid into me, you know, he just said, yeah, I didn't do the surgery on you so you can keep being a fireman. I did it so you could have a quality of life, you know. Um, he's like, if you keep doing this, they're going to keep coming back and it's just going to keep getting worse. Uh, so he, essentially that was it. Um, you know, he wrote, wrote a letter, sent me to the fire department and that was it. So I had a next trip to the medical office. I gave him his letter and, and, and that was the, that was the end for me. Um, you know, they gave me three choices. I remember doctor saying he said and none of them none of them include going full duty so here I am so by uh, I think that was in July of 2012 and by December I was retired 32 33 years old 33 um, you know I didn't really know what I was gonna do with the rest of my life you know at that point I, uh, I my wife was just pregnant with our third baby you know so three young kids 33 years old um you know and i and i loved the job i loved going to work i love you know everything that, that that we all love about it you know and i i wasn't ready to leave but i didn't want to be sick anymore either you know i i, I couldn't take uh you know i understood but you know it's still hard to you know to accept that i guess at that point um and then it wasn't, in, you know, it took me probably about a year before I got, you know, I started <clears throat> realizing what was happening, how it wasn't, it was bigger than just me. And, and, and at that point, when I look back now, the things that I was dealing with are minor com <laughs> compared to what I'm dealing with now, you know? Um, and, uh, so I guess around 2014, 
Um, I, I, I don't remember where, but I saw that the Zidrogo bill was set to expire, um, which is what provided us with our healthcare and, uh, and compensation. Um, so at that point, I just got on social media and started writing posts about it, sending out tweets and messaging anybody that I could, uh, you know, to try to, you know, raise the flag. Um, and my congressman uh, at the time reached out to me. Um, he came here to my house. We did a press conference. He was great, and uh, and that really started it for me. That got me, you know, pretty pretty much in in. Uh, in the game, I guess you would call it. Um, and I kept, you know, I just kept screaming as loud as I could. And then eventually uh, I made my way to a press conference at Ground Zero. And that's where I met Ray Pfeiffer and John Feel. Um, and, then, and then I got involved with them, which was already a, you know, a big voice um, that, it, you know, they'd already gotten the bill passed in 2010, um, you know, they were nice enough to take me on. Um, yeah, so I started going to Washington with them. Um, after the bill had expired, um, I believe it expired in October. Uh, so we went probably four or five months um, without a bill, um, fortunately, which is which is uh, which was one of our selling points, you know for a government program, our bill expired in October, we had enough money for the health program to function for at least a year after that, which is, you know, not many government programs uh, run that efficiently where they actually have money left over. Um, so fortunately, the program stayed open, but doctors started leaving because they weren't sure if they were gonna have a job, the nurses started leaving, which really, you know, caused a bit of a disruption in, in, in our care because those are the people who were studying this. Because if I went to a doctor in 2012 and tried to explain to them that I was at the World Trade Center and my feet are numb, they would they looked at me sideways. Like, what, is, what are you talking about? You know, your feet are numb. Um, you know, flash forward to six months ago when I went to the hospital and all I had to say was I was at the Trade Center and the doctor knew every, you know, I didn't even have to explain myself. She knew everything. So, you know, at that point, <laughs> not only were, were we fighting to get Congress to recognize what was happening, but we were fighting to keep our doctors together and the people who had been studying this for 15 years, you know, we, if, they, if they all started going their separate ways and there was no central database, then nobody would have been able to connect the dots like, like we can now, you know. Um, especially with the autoimmune issues, which are still not even added to the bill, but at least they're doing studies and at least they're acknowledging that there's something wrong here. You know, um, like I said, at the time I was 33 years old and I'd, <laughs> I'd go ride my bike and I, I can't feel my feet anymore, or, you know, and then I would just start shaking and let, you know, my hands shake, my feet shake, um, you know, eventually I got diagnosed with, with neuropathy um and a few other things which kind of explain it but it's kind of it's a weird feeling when 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 you have all these things going on and you're trying to explain to doctors and they look at you like you know because i don't have parkinson's disease and i don't have 
B12 deficiency and it, I, I don't have uh, sciatica. So the only other cause is exposure to toxins, um, which shouldn't have been that hard for me to have to explain to a doctor, but it's one of the story. So anyway, back to what I was saying. Um, yeah, so we, you know, I, I, I joined that fight late in 2015. Um, you know, we went to, we went down there probably several more months and then eventually they gave us a five-year extension um, on the BCF. Uh, and they gave us till 2090 on the healthcare, which was great. Um, but the healthcare, which will, it's tough to explain to people, but the healthcare is only part of the issue um, because the health program only covers 9-11 related illnesses. So now I was fortunate that I retired from the city of New York. So I got my pension and I got healthcare. But if you were a volunteer or came from another city, another agency or worked on Wall Street or were, was a student or anything, um, and you don't have healthcare, now you can't get it. You know, all these kids, like the kids who were in Stuyvesant High School, you know, they can't get healthcare because they have pre-existing conditions related to 9-11. So, how far is that health program going to go for someone like that who comes down with it? You know, they have a cancer that's related to 9-11. Well, that, that's a pre-existing condition. Um, so the VCF was, was, is vital, you know, even in, in New York City up until, I don't know, six months ago, they were laying off EMTs who had 9-11 cancer because they were out of sick days. So they were just putting them on regular disability with $13,000 a year to raise their families. You can't live on that. Um, so that was an important part of the fight. So we knew that in 2015 that it, it wasn't over, that five years wasn't nearly long enough when all the doctors were telling us that the 20 year mark is, is really when all the asbestos related diseases are gonna manifest and, and where things are really gonna kick into high gear. And at that point we were only 15 years out and we'd already had you know, 10, 20,000 people with cancer. Um, you know, I think now with this pandemic, uh, you know, we don't really have an accurate, accurate uh, picture because the program's been shut down. So we don't know, but, but right before the FDNY came out and said they were up to 2,800 members with a 9-11 cancer, at least one. Um, and, you know, pretty much the rest of us are dealing with all the other things like I am. Um, so, I mean, in, in retrospect, it was good for me because it gave me, it gave me purpose. It gave me uh, a way to continue serving, um, which, you know, I always, I always planned on uh, doing my 20 years, you know, at least my 20 years. Um, and oddly enough, when I was in college, uh, you know, my plan was to go to law school and go into politics. Um, I, when I did an internship um, for a member of parliament in London when I was in college uh, and I enjoyed it. Um, so I always planned on getting into it at some point, you know, um, but once 9-11 happened, uh, law school kind of went out the window, um, at least in the short term. And then by the time uh, I had the time or the energy, it just wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't something I thought of. Um, so then at that point, 2015, I got, you know, I guess I got my chance to 
keep going, you know, to keep fighting and, and keep serving. If, you know, I couldn't serve in the FDNY anymore, but I could still serve the members of the FDNY and NYPD and, and the school kids and my other brother who worked on Wall Street and my father who worked for the DOT who was there and all these other people. Um, so I kept going. Um, we knew, like I said, we knew, we knew the fight wasn't going to be over because more people were going to get sick, more people were going to die, and the BCF was going to run out of money before any of these other people can really, uh, you know, get the help they need. In the interim, um, you know, I mentioned Ray Pfeiffer earlier. Uh, a bunch of us, after Ray passed in 2017, uh, after his nine-year battle with, with stage four renal cancer, um, we decided to start a foundation in his name. Because uh, Ray was, you know, he was the heart of the FDNY. He was the guy who ran the Widows and Children's Christmas Party every year and, and the UFA golf outing. And he just, he did everything he could to help out the brothers. You know, that was his thing. Everything was about the brotherhood to Ray. So we decided that, you know, I mean, I, I saw it myself, the shortcomings of the 9-11 of the health program, um, you know, because it doesn't cover everything. You know, it's a great baseline, but like every health insurance, there's a lot of stuff that isn't covered. Um, and like those EMTs, you know, you were trying to live on a $13,000 a year salary. When you have cancer, um, the, the, you know, the bills add up. And, and, and the, like the quality of life things that really got to me, you know, like uh, the hospice care, you know, having the choice of, of dying in your own home rather than being in a hospital. Um, wheelchairs, motorized wheelchairs, so that so they can at least keep their, their independence and go out. Um, I use one now um, and it helps tremendously. You know, I don't, I'm, I can go places that I, that I just stopped going because I couldn't walk very far. Um, hospital beds, um, portable oxygen tanks. So, so, so many guys are, and women are on, are on uh, supplemental oxygen and, and all, all they get is a big tank. You can't, how are you going to go out? How are you going to go watch your kid play Little League when you got a truck around a big thing? So we created this foundation to fill in those gaps. Uh, you know, we're not tunnel to towers. We, we're not going to, we can't pay off people's mortgages. We're not, that's not what we do. We, we, we do the, the little things that, that help not only the people that are sick, but their family members, you know, it's, if you, uh, if you've ever seen somebody in hospice, it's, it's, it's tough to take care of somebody who's, who's sick, get them in and out of bed. You know, we, we had one, one guy, all he had to take care of him was his 18 year old daughter. Uh, and she had to drop out of college to stay home to take care of him, you know, so her life is, is affected and probably her kids, you know, it, it changes everybody's trajectory. Right. So we really wanted to do as much as we can for as many people as we could. And so in 2017, we started up the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. Um, and happy to say that we're still, we're still uh, doing well. Unfortunately, we're still needed, but uh, we're, still, we're still going strong. We still have a lot of support, um, you know, from people around the country. Uh, so that was great. Um, but then again, by the end of 2018, um, we knew that DBCF was running out of money. Um, and we knew that it was, it was, you know, I was fortunate. I had already been compensated. I had my pension. Uh, 
most of us who were going down to Washington making these trips were already compensated, uh, which is something that I'm most proud of, you know, because we didn't just, you know, all right, cash our chips in, you know, we got it. Uh, you know, it kind of rallied us like, no, this isn't right. I shouldn't get something that somebody who doesn't even know he's going to get sick yet doesn't get, you know. These people are going to need help in five, ten years. We had, you know, little kids as young as four years old going to schools in that in that zone, um, and those kids are getting sick now. And you know, if they can't get a job, they can't get healthcare. They can't. How are they going to have a life? You know. So it was very important for us to to uh, get that bill extended. So we tried at the end of 2018 um, to Feel Good Foundation. We started lobbying again. We we probably made between October and December, I don't know, probably like 10 trips, uh, hundreds of meetings, but we, you know, we knew that we weren't going to get a bill passed before the end of the year and that we'd have to start over again. But at least we, you know, got a foot in the door and, and started letting people know that we're coming, you know, we're coming back. Um, and then as soon as Congress went back in session, uh, the following year is when we really kicked it into high gear um, and we started going down constantly um like i said probably hundreds more meetings um and <laughs> surprisingly it was it was harder than i would have thought what it would have been um but at this point now you now you're 18 years out uh sitting across from a 22 year old intern that was three four years old on 9 11 doesn't really understand what happened um you know that those were the meetings that were the most frustrating. Um, I would say probably a third of them were, were, were nice and felt like we got through. And, you know, sometimes they would even say, yeah, we're in, we'll, we'll co-sponsor right now. And, you know, we'd get our nice photo op and everyone would be happy. And then there'd be a third where they were just straight up contentious, you know, um, in spite of the fact that, you know, the EPA and the government acknowledged that they lied to us about the air quality, like you said earlier. Um, Christy Whitman herself came out and said <laughs> that they gave us misinformation about the air quality. Um, and that was never our argument. We never wanted to get into why they lied to us. I mean, there, there are a hundred reasons why. I mean, we, we're seeing it now, um, you know, get Wall Street open, get the country back, all, all that. We get it. That wasn't our point. But it was it was the fact that you lied to us you sent us down there and now we're sick and now you're turning your back on us and half the people would have would have uh 11 paraphernalia up in their office one guy had a, a five foot fat head of ground zero like i could pick out faces of people i knew that's how big it was and at first he wouldn't even give us a meeting and his website said you know i joined the military because of 9-11 and blah 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 but when he had you know, two members of the FDNY, two members of the NYPD, uh, New York City Corrections, EMTs sitting in his office. He, he, you know, went out the back door, wouldn't even give us five minutes of his time. So that, th those were the meetings that really got to me. And then we have the 22 year old interns who had no idea what we were talking about. One kid was nodding his head, looking at us and the retired detective next to me told me when we left the room, he was just drawing circles on his doodle pad because a detective was trained to watch what you're doing. He wasn't even listening, you know? Um, so those, I mean, 
those angered me also, but not quite as much as the other guy. Um, so yeah, we, you know, we, we stalled a little bit, um, but that's when it started getting in the news. That's when John Stewart came back and, you know, started ripping into Mitch McConnell, um, quite famously. <laughs> um, and that's when it really started picking up, you know, once, once it became a national story and once we had that hearing and, and John and Alvarez and got up there and, and like O'Connell and, and Lila and, and everyone else, like they really sent the message home, you know, especially most of the chairs were empty in those hearings. You know, I was, was sitting there right behind John, 10 rows deep behind me full of people and then three or four members of Congress sitting in front of us and then the rest were empty chairs. They'd come in and out, blah, 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 but they couldn't even give us two hours, you know, whatever it was we were asking for. And that's when John made his famous speech. Uh, the, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, they came in, they did their job, do yours. Yeah. It, Par paraphrasing, I don't almost know. Almost every line in that speech is, it could be, uh, it could be a meme, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda didn't, you know, death to Tribeca. Uh, you know. I, behind me, I have a room full of 9-11 first responders and in front of me is an empty Congress, you know, and he was right. Um, and that was another issue. A lot of, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the members who actually met with us tried to do that. They tried to make it a New York issue and they would, you know, uh, meeting with Mark Meadows uh, himself. That was the first question he asked me. He said, well, what is New York doing about this? So I just looked at him and I said, well, did we ask Hawaii what they were doing about Pearl Harbor when they got bombed? And he just sat back in his chair and then we just, and we stole our stats and facts because that, that's, that's a ridiculous statement. Besides the fact that we had people from every single state in the country show up to help. 434 out of 435 congressional districts have somebody in the 9-11 health program. So besides that, it's just insulting to even say that in the first place. You know, New York wasn't attacked. America was attacked and they were, we weren't, it's not just first responders or, or survivors from New York that are sick. You know, there's people from the Pentagon that were injured, that were sick, people from Shanksville, it's not, you know, so that, that was another huge, uh, you know, talking point for a lot of people was, you know, this New York should be taking care of this and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, you know, it was usually people, you know, senators from states like Kentucky that, that, take you know twice as much from the government as as we put in you know we put new york puts in i don't know how much towards the federal budget but it's it's not even comparable to what kentucky takes you know so how can you say what is new york doing about this when well we, we bail out your state all the time every time there's a hurricane you know we we sent the fdny alone sent 400 members to katrina 400 that's bigger than most departments in this country and a lot of those guys are sick and many have died from non-eleven illnesses, you know? So that, that gets you fired up when you hear that, you know? And then, and then when a hurricane comes through their state, they're, they're looking for federal funding. But when there's a disaster in our state, an act of war, you're, we're on our own. No, that wasn't right. Uh, 
So that's one of the many things that got us, uh, <laughs> got me fired up. But at the end of the day, John's speech worked, you know, Mitch McConnell gave us, gave us a uh, sit down um, to use New York lingo. And, uh, you know, he told us in that meeting, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put up whatever bill Congress gives me for a vote by August. And the bill was signed on July 29th in, in the Rose Garden. So, you know, all that fighting and, and, and uh, I wouldn't even say fighting because when we went down there, we weren't fighting, we were cordial. We, yelling wasn't any, you know, John Stewart, that's his job. John Fielded, they're good at yelling, you know, they're good at, at making noise, but the rest of us, you know, we, we were there to bring, to put a human face to it, to, to tell our stories, you know? Um, and again, that, <laughs> that part of, I think that's the part that I'm still trying to come to grips with is that it took us, I don't know, countless trips to Washington, hundreds of meetings, me telling the story that I told you before, I'd have to say that 15 times a day in more detail. And I'd have to listen to all my friends tell their stories and how they had brain cancer, how my friend Tom had his tongue removed and his, his arm, his, his forearm muscle is now his tongue. He, he also had brain cancer and he's having his jaw replaced. I had to listen to this constantly while some kid is sitting there doodling in his doodle pad. Why did we have to go down there and do that? Why did, why did, did we have to continue to suffer on top of physically suffering, you know? And, and so that, that's the part of it that really, I, I just can't let go that they made us, made us fight over <laughs> compared to our national budget. You're talking about a couple of dollars, literally, you know, on the heels of a, of a one point whatever trillion dollar tax cut when, when, uh, what's his name? I can't even, well, I don't know, I can't think of his name. <laughs> Kentucky, uh, <laughs> I can't think of his name. McConnell? No, the other one. Uh, Paul. Rand Paul? Rand Paul. He was the 51st vote on a one point, whatever trillion dollar tax cut. And he's talking to us about fiscal responsibility and blocking, he, he objected to the bill and wanted to, wanted his amendments, which were ridiculous. Another five year bill caps, all this nonsense. Why? So, so now five years from now, when we're all dead, there'll be either be nobody to come down here and fight, or you're going to make these kids who've been sick since they're four years old from nine 11, come down here and tell their stories. That's not happening. You know, that, that you came in you that was bullshit <laughs> you came in with 2019 going we're going to do this deal and it's going to be permanent this like is that, it. that was the attitude like we're we're done coming back here let's finish this and be done we're yeah. over this go no more five-year nonsense no more you know they had all their time they wanted to see if there was going to be fraud well guess what there was none there's been zero cases they wanted to see if the program would run efficiently. Well, guess what? We had enough money to run for months after you, after you let it expire. You know, uh, they wanted to, to see if we were really sick, if the science backed up what we were, were saying for 15 years. Well, the science backed it up. And unfortunately, we've had 
you know, four or 5,000 funerals because of it. And we have people in Sloan Kettering right now battling cancer. We have people like Ray who battled cancer for nine years and, 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 you know, getting these weird cancers. Like, you know, we, I think at one point we had 40, 50 men with breast cancer and uh, geoblastoma, which is one of the rarest cancers out there, with, you know, John McCain has from that. We have dozens of cases of geoblastoma. We have, it's just, they're rare cancers, they're aggressive, um, and it's proven. I mean, it's all, it's all there, you know? And we don't have the time, we didn't have the time to, to accept anything less than a permanent bill. Uh, you know, like, those of us who were there, we all knew, we all operate under, under the knowledge that every cough, every little pain, every twinge could be it. You know, I, I, I know people personally, you know, in their 30s, 40s, thought they had a cold, went to the doctor, guess what, you have stage four lung cancer, dead in three months. If that's how, you know, we don't have the time to, to waste with, with congressional hearings and all this nonsense. We did that already. <laughs> more than once, you know? And it shouldn't take, God bless him, but it shouldn't take a comedian shaming all these people into doing the right thing. Why did he even have to be there? What, you know, I, I, I'm thankful that he was, but- the, This is the, mor the morality, the ethics, the, you know, whatever happened to never forget. Right, right. But when it comes to, to giving uh, ExxonMobil a tax cut, Sure, we got we got ten billion dollars for that, but we, we don't have ten billion dollars uh, to take care of you and my three kids and and all these other people that got sick because you you wanted to open Wall Street or you wanted to to make the country feel safe again. So you sent us there under the pretense that the air was safe, even though you know common sense would tell you if you can grab the air with your hand, and it was four thousand tons of four hundred tons of asbestos used in the construction of the World Trade Center. And not to mention, I don't know, 200 stories of glass and concrete dust and 160 other toxins that can kill you on their own. Not to mention the ones that were created that day. I mean, come on, you, these are the people, this is, this, is, this is where you're drawing the line with fiscal responsibility is, is with these people. You know, like we said, what if you leave us hanging right now and you just say that's it, you're done? What happens the next time there's a, 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 an emergency? What I mean, we're kind of seeing it now with the pandemic, even though it's it's not a singular moment. But people show up. People still go to work. You still get on the rig. You still get in the ambulance, right? I mean, you still do your job knowing that you can get sick, but you also do that on the understanding that if that happens, your family's going to be taken care of. Someone, you know, you're. Not, your wife isn't going to be told to kick rocks because you, you died from COVID or, you know, or you died from cancer from, from the chemicals in your gear, uh, which, I, which is another episode for you, I'm sure, many. Um, but you know what I mean? That's, that's the agreement, right? Sure, we're going to show up when, when this shit hits the fan, but, but you're not going to leave my family hanging out to dry. You're not going to let, leave me to, to die alone, you know. <laughs> I mean, we have to buy people diapers. Do you know, like, not only are, are you you're firing them from their jobs, you know, they, they, you know, you could be an MT in New York City for 20 years and, and the mayor just, all right, he's got cancer. 
put them on disability. You're not a person. You're just a number. Right. right. Like, yeah. you know, so what, what happens the next time then? If you're going to do that to us, then, then I wouldn't, I would, wouldn't let my kids show up. Would you, if it, I mean, would, would it, I mean, obviously like on 9-11 in those first three days when it was still a rescue effort, we're going to go there either way. You're not keeping us out of there. But once it becomes a, a recovery and, you know, and we have time to, you know, take a breath and, and go in there, you got you to gotta be able to believe the information you're being told. You have to be, you, you know, if you can't believe the president of the United States about what the air quality is like, then how you do your job, you know? How, how is it? It just made no sense to me that they chose 9-11 of all things and, and yet they, they still found the time to use 9-11 every year on 9-11 to push whatever shit they're pushing. Every single one of them, if you look at my Twitter page, you'll see, because I call them out every year, you know, they still tweet there, never forget, you know, the 12, got, the 12 uh, members of Congress who voted no on the bill still took the time to say never forget. A lot of them even referenced the first responders that got sick in their tweets, but you voted no on the bill to take it. So what are you saying? Your words mean nothing, you know? So it was the... Let me, but, let me ask you this, uh, Rob. When that, in 2019, when that was finally signed and it was permanent, what was that feeling like for you? Um, in the moment itself, that I can describe, but the, the other emotions added, like, as you can see, I still don't have a grip on it. Um, but I just remember standing over him and he was talking and I, all I heard was Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, just one, I'm just waiting for the hand to go across the page because for me, it wasn't done until that happened. And once it happened, I just, I, I, I don't even know what the emotions call it. Like laugh cried. Like I, 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 I was crying. I was, I was, I was relieved. Um, you know, I, I'm hesitant to say I was happy because I was just, it was so hard for me to get over the anger of all the other things that I just said. And I just thought of all the people like Ray, who didn't get to see it and, and all the people that are going to get help from this, you know, just in general and, and what it means for our country. Uh, you know, like all that stuff just rushed into me. Like this is, you know, it took us 18 years to right a wrong that wasn't perpetrated by Al Qaeda. You know, this was perpetrated by us. This, you know, making us go down there. It wasn't, Al Qaeda didn't make us go uh, to Congress for 18 years. We did, our government did, you know? So that, that's why I say like, I, I, I still haven't, I still haven't really figured out what those emotions are for me because it's, it was, it was disappointing and I, and I wasn't relieved and I didn't feel like we won because what did we win? We, my friends are still getting sick, you know, family members of mine are still getting diagnosed with cancer. It's still going to kill a lot of people that I know well before they should have died. Um, so I didn't, you know, 
I, I, I wasn't happy. You know, I was happy that I didn't have to get in a car and drive to Washington and be in pain freaking two or three days a week. Um, I was glad that was over, but you know, there's no victory in, in winning a battle that, that should never have been fought. So that's, that's, I still kind of feel that way. I was hoping that, you know, it's been over a year now, but especially in light of <laughs> what's gone on in the last six months, uh, you know, it's, it's been harder for me to, uh, you know, really get my head around it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, because I don't really, I honestly don't think there is one. Um, I think a lot of us felt the same way, you know. It's, it's, it's a victory, but it's bittersweet and it should have never happened. Right. And, and, and at the end of the day, no piece of legislation is going to stop what's what's happening you know you, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube uh, as they say like we're still going to get sick we're still going to die but at least at least i know that those those school kids aren't going to have to go to washington in five years uh you know because they can't get health care or or whatever so in that in, in those regards yeah I, I that makes me happy knowing that nobody else will have to do this again but you know, I don't know. It's hard to feel happy when we're still going to funerals and, you know, so. No. I wish I had a better answer. I wish I could say it was over and, you know, we went it's, home with our heads held high, but it's hard to do that. Cause I, at the same time, what did we do? We, we, we forced Congress to take care of American people. Um, we shouldn't have to do that. That's what their job is. And, you know, shouldn't have to be shamed into doing it uh by john stewart and and by twitter um you should do it because it's the right thing to do you know ray always said you know do the right thing even when nobody's looking well these guys they couldn't even do the right thing when everyone was looking they had to be shamed and and that, that makes me sad because i i love this country i grew up loving you know thinking we were the good guys thinking that you know we, we that's why i like being a farmer because we help people that's what that's what i was taught to do and to be and that's what i thought america was and then you know you go sit down with a united states congressman and he looks you in the face and and says i don't i don't see why this bill is necessary or like what do you mean like then then stop tweeting never forget then then fucking resign <laughs> if you don't think taking care of americans is, is necessary then what what is your job we're seeing it now. They're on vacation, right? We have 30 million people unemployed, people dying, and they go on vacation. So, maybe more sad, I think. Happy to have done it. You know, it's cool. Yeah, I got to go to the White House. I got to go to the State of Union. I got to meet all these famous people, but. Should never had to even. You, had, you should never had to do that. Should never had to do it, and it's not going to bring Ray back. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to give uh, Lou Alvarez the final year of the uh, month of his life back that he had to spend driving to Washington instead of watching the Yankees with his, with his kids and his wife. Well, that was necessary to make that man do that. It took that. You know, our word wasn't good enough. Yeah, everyone saw what we did that day and the days after it was, all, you know, they like to use those images and put fatheads on their office wall of, of all the stuff that we did 
you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's frustrating, you know, and it's, <sighs> but it makes you realize also, like I learned on 9-11, you know, I saw the worst of humanity that day, but I also saw the best. I saw all these men and women jump in that pile without being told to, you know, half the farm, FDNY firemen who died that day were off duty. You know, how many, how many congressmen have ever died in the line of duty, let alone while they were off duty? How many of them, should, they won't even show up to work in the middle of a pandemic because they're on vacation. You know, Stephen Siller was sitting on his couch and ran through the freaking battery tunnel to, to get there, knowing that he probably wasn't going home. And these people don't, they, they'll never understand that, you know? So, I don't know. I, I hope that, especially we're seeing it now, like, you know, cancers aren't going away in, in the fire department, right? The numbers are going up. Um, we know why. They know why. But it's going to take, you know what it's going to take? It's going to take the same, same type of thing. And, and, and the problem is, is like with 9-11, there, there was a singular moment where the whole world was watching, you know, nobody's nobody's watching uh rob sarah put on his bunker gear you know five thousand times a year in, in squad 18 going on ems runs and this run and that they're not watching that they're not watching you know all over the country but you know all day long you going to emergencies and you play, they're not watching that so it's not that's something they can use for their benefit so it's going to be you know every i i tell Anybody who will listen, you know, obviously I have a lot of friends on the job, but, you know, you have to look out for you because you can't trust them to look out for you. I mean, we just saw it, you know, I mean, look at the people that were there in Washington with us, you know, with the Feel Good Foundation. They weren't chiefs. They weren't commissioners. I was a fireman. I was a, you know, I mean, maybe, the, you know, we, we would have a captain here and there all the time, but most of most of it were the, the grunts, if you will. We were the ones who went down there and, and fought for this. It wasn't, it wasn't Rudy Giuliani, who was my boss. It wasn't, you know, and I'm not even saying that in a political way. I'm just saying it wasn't the fire commissioner. It wasn't any of those guys. It wasn't anybody. It was, it was us. And at the end of the day, they're going to take care of them. You got to take care of you. You got to take care of your family. You got to document every single thing that happens to you. Docu you know, don't be like me. You know, I, I, I had that surgery and I shouldn't have gone back to work. They shouldn't have let me go back to work, but they did because it's, what, what are they going to pay me to go home? So all I did was, was go back to work, inhale more toxins for, for two years, have a building fall on my head, break my neck, all this other stuff that happened when I shouldn't even have been there, they, you know, all these guys, I could tell you stories, guys having the same surgery I had on their vacations because they didn't want the job to know because they wanted to keep working. And I'm guilty of that too. You know, I mean, after my surgery, I would, I, if I got a sinus infection, I would try to get somebody to cover for me or, or, or you know, or something else. I, I, the last thing I wanted to do was, was go sick with that because I knew that it was going to set off red flags at that point. I kept getting 20 sinus infections in a year. So I was stupid. And I hope people learn from that. You know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we got to take care of each other, man. You can't, 
Well, and, and that's what you're doing now. Yeah. I mean, that's what you've always done, really. You've always, clearly, you've always served. Maybe in different capacities, but you're still serving now with the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, uh, I hope so. I hope that, that uh, you know, I hope it's helping. I hope, uh, you know, I, I feel like what we do is the right thing. I think it's needed. I think, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, that's, I think that's. When you talk about taking care of your own, I mean, that's, that is exactly what you're doing. Before you took care of everybody and anybody, the citizens of New York, all the, all the tourists, everybody, you know, you go, you go to DC all those different times and you're looking out for everybody in the country. And now you've gotten back to the point where you're just taking care of your own. I think that's huge. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, what else? what else are we going to do? I mean, that, but well, who else is going to do it? You know, like I said, you can't, you can't sit around. I'm never, I was never like that. You know, I, I had strong parents that, you know, my parents were fighters and they taught me to fight. And I, I am not the type of person to let somebody else fight my battle, which is why I started going to Washington in the first place. Cause I wasn't comfortable seeing at home, knowing that there was a fight going on for me and someone else was doing it. It just doesn't, doesn't sit right with me, you know, and yeah, that's, that's really what Ray taught me, you know, he, no matter how sick you are or, or, you know, he would say, no matter how bad you feel, get up, dress up and show up. Doesn't matter. You know, I could tell you a million stories about him and in the brief time that I know him of how he just put everyone else before him. And that's the type of thing that, that should carry on. That's the type of, you know, not just in the fire service, but in life, you know. Um, I'll tell you a couple of quick race stories. For me personally, um, like I said, I, I was in a building collapse, um, which my neck has progressively gotten worse at this point now. I've had two fusions. But after the first fusion was, was probably, I, I had the surgery in July, and I was down in Washington, you know, walking the halls like a month or two later. And I was hurting. My feet were numb, which I didn't understand why at that point. I didn't know that there were other things happening. And Ray comes right, rolling up next to me in, in his wheelchair. And I was leaning up against the wall, trying to hold in my tears because I was in that much pain. And he just stood up and he could barely walk. I mean, he had so many surgeries. He, his legs were all metal, you know. And he just said, sit down. I said, Ray, I'm not, not sitting in your chair. And he said, well, I'm not asking. And he made me sit in his chair. You know, a guy dying of cancer would rather me, you know, that's the type of guy he was. And then as I got worse, you know, he just always, you know, there's just people in your life that always just seem to know, even, even if you don't realize it, that, that you're in a bad way, you know, like every, Every time I had a bad day, I would just have a text from him, you know? And the, one of the last times I spoke to him was uh, right before my second surgery. And, and 
I had just found out that, that the first surgery failed and I, it's a whole long story, but my spine wasn't fused. So for a couple of years, I was walking around with four little screws holding it, my neck together. And I was in a lot of pain and I was, you know, feeling sorry for myself and in my garage drinking because I didn't want to have another surgery. I didn't want to start over again. And I was, I was resolute. I was going to stay in the garage and drink. I wouldn't answer my phone. And then it rang. And of course it was Ray. And I just, I said, Ray, I don't, I don't know if I could do this. I was like, how do you, how do you, how do you keep fighting? Uh, you know, that you're going to die, you know, like, how do you keep going? And he just said, the love of my family and, and the brotherhood. And, uh, you know, you gotta just, you just can't give up. And then he broke my balls and, you know, <laughs> made fun of the Rangers like he always did and, and whatever. And he got me laughing and talking and out of the garage and made me realize that, you know, it wasn't just me. And I had everything I needed 20 feet away inside the house, you know. Um, I think that's important, you know. And uh, so, yeah, he taught me not only to take care of other people, but to take care of myself. And you can't fight for other people if you give up on yourself, right? You know, so, you know, he was always there, you know, he... You know, I'm sure anybody who ever met him would be saying the same thing that I am. Until the day he died, he was, he was always there for other people. So, you know, I'm not Ray. I'm not, <laughs> certainly not as nice as Ray was. But uh, if I can carry on that tradition of, you know, I'm here, I'm alive. You know, it might suck. Some days might be worse than others. But, you know, you can't stop fighting because... You know, there's always somebody else, somebody, there's always somebody who needs to be fought for. There's always, if not just yourself, you know. And I got three little kids. So now I have the opportunity, because of Ray, to carry on with the foundation, with everybody else, and, and teach my kids that, you know. And that's, that's, that's probably the best part, you know. You said I still get to serve, but I don't really look at it that way. I look at it as I get to leave. I get to leave my kids knowing that, I don't know, I guess I, I went down swinging and I, I tried to help other people as much as I could and tried to be good. And for me, if my, if, if my kids can learn from that, then, you know, all those bullshit trips to Washington fighting with, with idiots. Uh, and bad people who are worth it, you know, because they're going to get, you know, they might be young now, but someday maybe they'll realize it. And maybe they'll fight. Maybe they'll teach their kids to be fighters. And Because really, you know. Stand up for what's right. That's right, because if we don't do it, then, you know, Exxon Mobil's going to win. And, 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 you know, all, you know, with, we, you know, yeah, I don't, don't want to be cliche, but we can't, we can't let that light go out. You know, you gotta, everyone's, everyone's gotta play their part. Um, you know, so that's, it sucks. You know, I, I wish that my first day on the job wasn't essentially my last day. You know, which is how I look at it now. Like, really started. It's like a Bob Dylan song, but really my career started ending. The, they had started, you know. Uh, I wish I got to be a senior man and and 
take young idiots like me under under my wing like so many people did for me you know even if i didn't realize it at the time you know but you know gotta play with doubt right you know not, gotta uh gotta make lemonade so that's what we try to do and hopefully um you know, hopefully this never happens again and hopefully that this is the worst of it and hopefully that we're wrong i've i said that in every meeting i hope that i'm wrong and i hope that that all these doctors are wrong and we're all not gonna you know die of a terrible disease but you know common sense and my eyes tell me otherwise so but anyway you know hopefully i'm wrong i'll live 20 30 more years and get to watch my kids grow up but if not I gotta give them what I can right now. And, and that is, like you said, taking care of other people. And, oh man. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, role model comes to mind. I mean, somebody to look up to. And hopefully, I hope they look up to me. You know, I mean, yeah. besides just because I'm daddy, you know, because I think all kids look up to their dads. But I hope someday they can look back and, and say, you know, you know, my daddy was a fighter. I guess that's the best thing you could say about somebody, right? In a good way. Yes, he was one of the good guys. Right. Right. Even if he was a pain in the ass. Who's <laughs> <laughs> perfect, though, really? Right. All right. Well, hey, uh, if you will, tell us all where we can uh, find out more information about the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. We simplified it. It's the rpf.org. Um, you can make donations right on the site there. Uh, it'll tell you all about Ray, all about what we do. Uh, oh, my, my ring light timed out. Hold on. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, <laughs> you know, it'll tell you, it'll tell you, uh, you know, Ray's story, a little bit about us and what we do. Um, you know, you can make monthly donations. Um, you can make a, a single donation. You can look at, we, we have events, uh, Unfortunately, none planned at the moment. Um, but we have events throughout the year. We have a big golf outing every year. Um, yeah, if, if you want to help out, um, that's a great place to start. You know, like I said, there's in the FDNY alone, we have we have uh, over 2,800 with cancer right now, um, and we we only we not only help uh, firefighters, we help police officers, EMTs, any first responders from anywhere in the country, um, you know, we, we, if you know somebody who needs help, even more importantly, um, direct them to us. They, you can apply for help right online, right on the page. Um, so spread the word to anybody who was there, go to the doctor, get in the program. And then if you get certified for any illnesses, call us and we'll, you know, we'll be more than happy to help. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for, and sincerely, everything you've done, you know, throughout your career, your multiple careers, really, is kind of how I look at it, um, but all serving. I and, look at uh, it as one, I, you know, this, I'm still going, I'm getting, I'm getting my 20s, like, I'm getting close. Nice. All right, I'll, I'll go for that too, that sounds good. <laughs> but no, and, and thanks for your time tonight, Rob, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, no worries, man, thanks, thanks for having me on. All right. So brother, have have a good night, all right? You too. Be safe.